Stasis interrupted. Fire in cryogenic compartment. Repeat. Fire in cryogenic compartment. This is Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, with your hosts, Jane Prater and Ryan Seed. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. Uh, this is episode 42. I am your host, J.M. Prater, and these are my co-hosts, Ryan Woo-hoo! and Peter. Hey, everybody. What's going on? And today we are doing something very, very different for us. We've never done this before. We're doing a script reading. And our original intent was to have a couple of girls. Uh, we, 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 actually, what we're going to do is we're going to read a script called Alien Rising. And it was a script that I wrote when I was 20 or 21, right after uh, Alien Resurrection um, premiered and I was all excited and posters and all that stuff. Um, but <laughs> I, I, upon reading the script that I wrote, <laughs> I realized I didn't <laughs> like it at all. Um, and I thought it was way too similar to alien resurrection. Uh, I mean, similar, but I, I just didn't, I just didn't like it. And I, what I, during that time too, I didn't like it so much that back during that time, after I'd written that script, I, kind of tossed it out and I wrote another script called Alien Genesis, um, which is, this this file is called Alien 5. Um, that's the script we're going to be reading. It is unfinished. It's 52 pages. We're going to be reading that script today. Um, and I'm going to be voicing Ripley and then Ryan's going to be voicing um, the other characters and our narrator in chief will be Peter Hype. Um, and so that's what we're going to do today. And then after we're done here, we're going to, I'm going to read a scene from Alien the alien rising script, a scene that I think is very interesting. And it was me writing kind of some answers as to what I think was kind of the questions that I had about alien life cycle and stuff that I kind of answered in my alien rising script. I thought it was a, an interesting scene. I don't really like the script at all. Uh, there's a lot of grammatical errors, but that's, you know, that was me being 20 years old and whatever. Um, so that's what we're going to do today. So, um, thank you for listening and, uh, we're going to get going and, um, so let's begin, fellas. Yeah, let's do it. So Alien, this is Alien Genesis, written in 2000 by myself, J.M. Prater. Exterior space. Planet Earth floats, still eclipsing the sun's view. Stars twinkle in reflection. Cut to exterior, Russian village, winter, daytime. Snow grips a small Russian mining town. The wind is blowing howling through the sparse trees. Few people are seen on the snow-covered streets. The ones that are are dressed in large hooded coats with scarves wrapped beneath them protecting their faces. The town is small, a forest surrounding. The buildings are dirty white, rounded edges, automatic doors, flashing lights. People walking in the streets of the city quickly disappear into the spaceship-like housing structures, all except for one, Ripley, who walks beyond the boundaries of the structures and into the woods. Ripley has a sack around her back. She enters the woods, the winds howling even louder, deer bolting, rabbits burrowing into their hideouts. Ripley continues to walk through the woods along a path of footprints. Eventually the path leads out of the woods into a small structure with an adjoining glass green home. The steam from the greenhouse clouds the windows. As Ripley walks closer to the structure, She hears a twig snap. She stops, looks around, her movements almost animal-like, her nose clearly trying to find a scent. She hears nothing, 
and continues to the door of the structure. She enters in. Cut to exterior, lone structure, daytime. The door of the structure slides shut automatically behind Ripley. She stands there in the foyer of the small futuristic cottage. She stamps her boots clean as snow, slowly unzipping her coat. She begins to slide off her coat, taking the hood off and then unwrapping the scarf from around her nose and mouth. We stare into the face of Ellen Ripley number eight. Her hair is much shorter from when she was seen last aboard the Betty. Not bald, but very short. Ripley looks around her small home, fire blazing, two cats sleeping in front of it. Ripley walks into the small living room. Cats get up and walk slowly up to her legs, rubbing up against them. Ripley. Hello, girls. Mommy's home. Ripley looks into the adjoining kitchen and to the floor. The cat's food and water dishes are empty. Ripley continued. Hungry? Ripley walks into the sterile white kitchen, opening a cabinet door. She eyes the cat food and grabs it, pouring it into both of the dishes on the floor. The cats run up to the dishes, digging in on their own meal. Ripley continued. That hungry, huh? Ripley scratches the heads of both of the cats while they eat. One cat hisses at her, making a cat growl. Ripley continued. I'll let you eat. Sorry. Ripley leaves the cats alone. Ripley continued. Little shits. Ripley moves through the small studio-like place. The house is near empty. No chairs. No couches. No tables. Ripley wanders to a single bed in the sectioned-off part of the house. She sits down on the bed, resting her head in her hands. She slowly lays down, closing her eyes. Cut to Ripley's nightmare, black. A flash of a part alien, part human, seen from the darkness. Cut to interior lone structure, daytime. Ripley opens her eyes, startled from the image. She lies there in the bed for a while, her eyes staring at nothing. She quickly gets up and walks toward a small bathroom on the opposite side of the structure. Ripley looks at herself in the mirror, her eyes ambivalent at what they see. Ripley takes off her t-shirt and the long sleeve thermal underneath. Revealed beneath the layers is another tank top shirt. The number eight is quickly visible on her arm. Ripley's eyes dart to it. Ripley stands there staring at herself for a while longer before removing her t-shirt turning on the shower in the small cryo-like shower stall. Ripley enters in the shower, the steam clouding her figure. She stands under the persistent steam, her eyes closed, her arms around her body. Outside of the shower stall, one of Ripley's cats wanders in crying. Ripley. I'll be out in a minute. You're still hungry after that? The cats cry louder, more persistent. Water is turned off in the shower. Ripley continued. All right, all right, I'm coming. Ripley steps out of the shower, feeling a cold chill. The cottage door is open. The wind howls through blowing snow with it. Ripley looks around quickly as if in fast motion. Quickly she grabs a towel and makes for the open door, shutting it. Ripley stands by her door, gazing around her cottage, her eyes scanning everything. Nothing to be seen. Not a sound. Not a sight. Ripley hesitates at the door, still scanning the cottage. Eventually, she cautiously walks towards a closet and grabs clothing. A few hours later, Ripley lies asleep, her hand on her heart, as if she was in hypersleep. Cut to 
Interior, Ripley's Dream. Dead and still. The city stands, black and tall, shimmering from the moon's light, waves crash beneath it. The city is black and asleep. The waves move rhythmically, rising up and smashing against the hard metal base of the buildings. A bird flies down to the water's edge, scooping up a small fish and then flying up along Sleek Tower. The bird flies up the structure, the fish squirming in its mouth. It flies higher and nestles on a window seal in the middle of the building. The bird gulps the fish down. It moves its head around, looking inside the room. It walks closer into the room, towards the end of the ledge. Glass shards align in the edge of the window. The bird is staring at Ripley asleep on the bed. Cut to interior, Ripley's dream, bedroom, nighttime. The room where Ripley lies is in shambles. The walls are falling apart, bugs raining the floor. Ripley turns violently in her sleep, blankets falling off her bed. Then she suddenly sits up. Ripley. Newt, stay with me. Ripley opens her wet eyes. She looks around the empty room, shaking her head. Her eyes glance at the broken window. She watches as the bird bobs back and forth in front of the horizon that is lit by the dim moon. The water shimmers beneath the obelisks of buildings in the far-off distance. Ripley's pupils try and focus. She brings her eyes from the side of the city and back into her room. Glancing around her surroundings, she hears a sound coming from the window. She turns her head with lightning speed. The birds fly away. Ripley gets up from the bed and moves towards the window. Ever so slightly, she peeks out to the ledge and down to the water below. There, she sees nothing. Ripley brings her head in, and before it is in all the way, she's grabbed and pulled upwards out of the building. Cut to exterior, Ripley's dream, outside building, nighttime. An alien holds Ripley in its grasp. Ripley's face is emotionless, staring up at the beast. The alien draws her nearer to itself. Ripley falls limp in its arms. The alien stares in the eyes of Ripley, nudging its chin up against her. The alien changes form suddenly. The alien has turned into a hybrid Ripley. Hybrid Ripley strokes Ripley 8's face. Ripley number two. Don't run from me. We are sisters, you and I. Continued. Hybrid Ripley drops Ripley 8. Ripley 8 falls slowly down, down into the water. She hits the water and sinks beneath the waves. She starts to swim up towards the surface, and when she reaches the top, she cannot escape. There's an organic mesh that denies her of air. Ripley tries to rip it open, but the mesh will not tear. She panics and loses the rest of her air, sinking below. Cut to interior, Ripley's cottage, night. Ripley startles awake, and seated next to her bed is a man, Thomas Cameron who is in his early 30s, rugged and worn, but attractive. Before the man realizes it, Ripley has grabbed him by the throat and hoisted him up. Ripley. Who are you? Thomas chokes, unable to breathe or respond. Ripley continued. I said, who the fuck are you? Thomas loses more air, gasping. Thomas. Please. Ripley loosens her grip and Thomas falls to the floor 
coughing and gagging. Slowly he gets up, Ripley towering over him, ready to strike again. Thomas continued. I... I... Ripley. You what? Thomas sits himself in place on the floor of the cottage, directly at Ripley's feet. Ripley continued. You have exactly one minute to give me answers. Thomas coughs again. Thomas. Please, I'm, I, I need... Ripley. You need what? Thomas. I need your help. Ripley squats down to Thomas's level. Ripley. I don't know you. You could be here to kill me for all I know. Thomas holds his throat and stares up at Ripley, who is not amused. Thomas. My wife, she, she's disappeared. I was told to come to you. Ripley. Told by whom? How do you know me? How did you know I was here? Thomas starts to get up when Ripley approaches him and he sits back in place. Thomas. They told me. Ripley. They? Are there more? Ripley quickly grances towards the window. Thomas. The company, they, they've known all along where you've been. They tracked you ever since you came here. Ripley. You're lying. Thomas. No, 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 it's true. They told me where you were. They told me how to find you. Ripley. Well, you found me. Thomas. My wife, she, she's disappeared. She's been gone for six months. There's been search teams, rescue missions, but no one's been able to find her. Ripley. Where's your wife? Thomas. She, she's a biological scientist. She was hired by the company. She's been doing research for them and was sent out to the Lars Variance Colony. Ripley. Then why do you need me? Thomas. They said you're the only one who could help me. Ripley. You keep saying they. Thomas. Yes, like I said, the company. Ripley. There is no more company. You've gotten your lies mixed up. Thomas. They said you'd be mistrusting. Ripley squats down to Thomas's level, looking him square in the eyes. Ripley. This isn't a fucking riddle. Thomas. The, the company, the board of directors, they're the ones who bankrolled the expedition. They know about you. They've known about you. Ripley. Known what? Thomas. When you crash landed in France, how you made it to New Russia, your life here, everything. Ripley stands up, her eyes fluttering, puzzled. Thomas looks up at her before hesitating to rise, standing a few inches shorter than Ripley. Ripley looks at Thomas, almost eye level with her. Thomas backs away. Ripley takes notice and smiles. Ripley. I won't bite. Thomas. They said that. Ripley. That I was a monster? Thomas. Well, well, yes. Ripley smiles again, nearly laughing. Ripley's calves come from behind her, nuzzling her calves, purring, talking softly. She kneels down to caress them. Ripley to cats. So I'm a monster, am I? Thomas. I didn't mean to say that. Ripley cuts Thomas off, still caressing her cats. Ripley to cats. What do they know, huh? What do they know, huh, girls? What do they know? Ripley continues to pet her animals before slowly rising. As she meets Thomas's eyes, she locks, staring at him. Ripley continued. Get out.
Thomas. Uh, Ripley. I said get out. Thomas. You don't understand. Ripley. No. Thomas. No. Ripley grabs Thomas, taking him to her cottage door entrance. Ripley opens the door and throws Thomas out into the cold, slamming the door behind him. The cottage is quiet. The fire blazes. Ripley looks up at her family of cats. Ripley. There. Back to normal. Cats purr with delight. Cut to a few hours later. Ripley sleeps, her familiar position, with her hand on her chest and her cats at her feet. Shadow passes in front of the bed. Ripley's eyes open near, instinctively darting around in place, but not frightened. As soon as they've opened, they've shut again, and Ripley continues as if her sleep had never been interrupted. A gun is cocked. Ripley's eyes open. She's frozen. A gun is pointed at her head. Thomas stands, shaking, sweating, trying to be firm. Thomas. I, I'm sorry. You have to come with me. I need your help. You have to help me. Ripley sits up, unafraid. Ripley. What do you intend to do? Thomas. I, I need you. You have to listen to me now. My wife. My wife. Ripley. What about your wife? Thomas. You have to help me find her. She's all I have. Ripley moves again. Thomas quickly repositions the gun closer. His sweat is visible. His stuttering intensifies. Thomas continued. I, I, I'll die without her. Ripley stares up at Thomas, puzzled but amused. Ripley. What's in it for me? Thomas, surprised by Ripley's comment, unknowingly lowers the gun. Thomas. You'll help me then? Quickly, Ripley gets up quickly, knocking the gun out of Thomas's grasp. He is startled, now stripped of his power, and he backs away. Ripley. I don't like guns. Thomas. Please, please, just wait. I'm sorry. I didn't think you'd help me any other way. Ripley. You should have asked me. Thomas. I did. You, you, you threw me out. Ripley takes the gun, opening the cottage door, about to throw it out. Before she does, she sees a ship, off-white, small, industrial, alight, waiting. Thomas walks from behind her. Thomas continued. That's the zygote, my ship. Ripley. Your ship? More like your shuttle. Thomas. That's the ship they gave me to find you. Ripley turns to Thomas, looking him in the eyes. Ripley. How did you find me? Thomas's breathing increases. Thomas. The company told me. They gave me the map, the ship, and everything. Thomas lets out his words as if gasping for each breath. Ripley notices, lightly touching his arm. Ripley. Calm down. It's okay. I'm not going to hurt you. Thomas takes a deep breath. Ripley continues. You all right? Thomas catches his breath, staring at Ripley, still unsure. His eyes fill with tears. Ripley takes notice. Thomas falls to the ground, sobbing and pleading. Thomas. Please. I don't know what to say or do. I need you. Only you can find her. I don't know what to do. Ripley stares down at Thomas, uncomfortable, unfamiliar with his emotions. Ripley. I don't understand. Why do you need me? You don't even know who I am, what I am. Thomas takes another breath, composing himself. He gets up from the floor. Thomas. This... They said, they said, they said, 
They said you know what they are, how they live, what they do. Ripley's eyes widened just a bit at his revelation. She knows what he's talking about. She knows why he's been, why he's there before her. Ripley puts her hands on Thomas, turning him around to her. Thomas looks deep into Ripley's black eyes. Ripley, tell me everything. Cut to 10 minutes later. Thomas and Ripley are seated in front of the fireplace. Ripley's cats purr at her feet, cleaning themselves. Thomas is telling his fate. Thomas. She's worked for the company for 10 years. Thomas continues. She's an independent researcher, a chief in her field. She's the one who discovered the Mobius species on Thetis II. Ripley listens intently while caressing her pets. Thomas continues. Six months ago, my wife decided to take on the project on the Lars Variance colony. It's been a big project, much talked about. She wasn't going to do it, she swore to me, until... Thomas yawns, his eyelids drowsy. Ripley? Until? Thomas? Excuse me, uh, until the leader of the expedition left the project because of union issues concerning pay negotiations with the company. When Sue, my wife, when Sue found out she jumped aboard so fast, I, I didn't want her to go, but she assured me that the money would set us up for the rest of our lives. I was against it, but at the same time, I loved my wife. I knew she wanted the project. Ripley, so you let her go? Thomas. I had to. Ripley. And? Thomas. And when she left me here on Earth, that was the last I saw of her. The company contacted me after she stopped uploading her field journals. Ripley. Why couldn't they find her? Thomas. They looked. I helped them. We scoured the planet, found her camp. We couldn't find her or any of her team. Thomas continues. No body, no blood, nothing. There was only one place we didn't look, where we wouldn't look. Ripley. The nest. Thomas. You don't understand, it's not a nest. Well, not just a nest. It's blackness, dark. No light, nothing, where they live. Where she has to be. Where I know she is. Ripley. You think she's alive? Thomas. I do. I don't know how or why, I just know. Sue isn't stupid. She knew about them. That's why she was there. She knew it. They all knew it. They're no secret anymore. The fire blazes. The light of it catching Ripley's eyes as she stares into Thomas's honest, caring, desperate face. Ripley. What do you think I can do? Thomas lowers his head, rubbing his eyes. Thomas. Something. I hope something. Ripley looks back into the fire, gazing for an eternity, and then looking at her cats who are now curled up, asleep. Cut to interior. Zygo. The ship fires up, a deep rumble, shaking everything. Ripley is strapped into a large passenger chair located at the front of the used interior of the shuttle. Thomas sits in front of Ripley, flipping switches, checking gauges. Zygo rises off the ground of the white blanketed snow. Wind blows over the top of the metal cottage. Under lights brighten the snow, lighting the forest around the area. 
Ripley looks out a window down at the life she has led for the past three years. Somehow she knows. She knows it's the last she'll see of it. Cut to. Exterior. Gateway station. Space. The zygote slowly docks outside of the large space station. The design of the station is still intact from aliens, but larger, with more wings added on. More like a city, hovering above the Earth. Cut to. Interior of the zygote. The zygote settles, the engine's quiet, the lights dim. Thomas quickly unstraps his seatbelt, getting up. Ripley remains in her chair, staring at the station and at the great big earth, blue lush below her. Thomas. Uh, are you all right? Ripley doesn't respond. Thomas continues. Been here before? No response. Cut to interior, gateway station, docking bay. Thomas secures the shuttle. Ripley stands at a window again, looking out at the great expanse of stars, Earth and beyond. Thomas finishes, turning towards Ripley. Thomas. Here we are. Are you ready? Ripley keeps her eyes locked in the cosmos. Ripley. It all seems so futile from here. Thomas laughs a nervous laugh, walking away from Ripley towards the shuttle docking bay exit. When reaching it, Thomas turns back towards Ripley. Thomas. You coming? Ripley finally breaks her gaze, looking over at Thomas. She stares at him a minute and then joins him next to the open exit door. Both of them exit. Cut to interior, gateway station. The exit from the docking bay is led to a grand foyer inside of the station. The foyer reaches around the small offshooting corridors that lead to small apartments. Located in the foyer itself are restaurants, bathrooms, duty-free gift shops. Much like an airport, there's an entrance to docking bays guarded by security blocks, scanners, and lasers. The station is quiet. No one is seen except for a security guard with an automatic weapon who looks up and sees Ripley and Thomas enter on the top level of the foyer. The security guard leaves his post by the docking bay entrances, switching on an automated sensor before he does. Ripley spies the security guard, pointing him out to Thomas. Ripley. We're not alone. Thomas looks down from the foyer but sees no one. Just then a door opens from a nearby elevator shaft. The security guard walks out and up to Ripley and Thomas. Security guard. You folks just get in? Thomas turns quickly, startled. Thomas. Oh, oh, yes. We're with the company. They know we're coming. Security guard. Yes, I was informed. Security guard doesn't give Thomas a second thought, but stares intently at Ripley, as if he's never seen anything like her. Ripley immediately notices and is embarrassed, turning her head away from the voyeur. Thomas clears his throat, drawing the attention away from Ripley. The security guard blinks a few times. Security guard continued. There are sleeping quarters arranged for you until your flight tomorrow. The security guard moves away, leading the duo. Security guard continued. This way. Ripley and Thomas follow their armed guide back to the elevator shafts. An elevator is called. They get in and descend to the lower level of the foyer. The security guard leads them out past the restaurants and gift shops, down a hall and into a corridor that leads to a small apartment door marked Customs. The security guard punches a few codes into a keypad next to the door. The codes are accepted. The door slides open, creating a small gust of chilled air. 
Ripley puts her arms around her to ward off the chill. Security guard continued. This is where you've been put for the night. I think there's food in the fridge. It's small, but the exec said you wouldn't be here long. Thomas walks in, looking around at the small place, two beds on either side, the low and comforting hum of an exhaust fan. Thomas. Thanks. It'll be fine. Cut to interior, gateway station, morning. Thomas and Ripley are seated in a small conference room. Two company execs sit next to them on opposite sides. Company executive number one. Your flight leaves in a few minutes, so it will be brief. You'll have the company's full support in this effort to find your wife. We are sorry that our own efforts proved in vain. The flight will be a six-month trip in which, well, as you know, Mr. Cameron, will take you beyond boundaries of network. Thomas shifts in his seat, slightly uncomfortable with the idea of again being so far from civilization. Thomas. Yes, yes, I know. Company executive number two looks at Ripley. Company executive number two. Ripley? Ripley, who's been staring at the table for most of the time, looks up. Company executive number two continued. Ripley, we know, well, let's just say we know. Ripley. You know what? Company executive number one looks over at Ripley with compassion. Company executive number two. We know how this must be for you. We know your history with this company, the mistrust, the doubt, the schemes, the lives lost. Ripley looks down again at the table. Ripley. I don't know what I remember. Company executive number one quickly interrupts. Company executive number one. We'd like to personally thank you for agreeing to this. We were sure you wouldn't ever put yourself in harm's way again, especially if it involves these things. Thomas and the executives look on at Ripley for a response. There is no response, only silence. Company executive number two. What I don't understand is why you've chosen to come back yet again to this planet. We'd have let you live your life in peace, and here you are. Ripley looks up at company executive number two, puzzled. Ripley. What do you mean, come back? Company executive number two looks at company executive number one, talking without speaking. Thomas is bewildered. Executive number one. Don't you know where you're going? Ripley looks at the man, blankly, trying to remember something she has pieces of memories of. Ripley. I... I'm not... I... I can't. Executive number one interrupts. Executive number one. This planet has been in company custody for the past few centuries. It was discovered when a crew aboard a ship called the Nostromo were awakened and sent to harvest a creature. LB-426, Lars Variance 426. Ripley. The Nostromo? Thomas, ignorant of everything, trying to fit the pieces together, blurts out. Thomas. What's an Nostromo? Executive number two. What do you remember, Ripley? A digital chime rings and an automated female voice speaks. Automated female voice. Scheduled departure of the USS Merchant in 15 Pacific Time Earth minutes. Company executive number one looks up at the ceiling, computing this information. Executive number one. That's for you, so we w must be moving on. To recap, I'll say this. The Lars Variance colony is LB-426. 
It is now abandoned, save for research expeditions, but still under tight security. Network won't even let you cross into the atmosphere unless you have proper clearance. Executive number two. The merchant is ready. You'll be joined by two others who will serve as guides for you. This is the last mission we will sponsor, and we wish you the best. Ripley looks to executive number one. Ripley. If something should happen, will you send a rescue team? Both executives stare at each other briefly. Thomas and Ripley also exchange glances. Executive number two. No rescue team will be sent. Our interference with this species has only resulted in failure and death. If you don't succeed, no one will. Thomas and Ripley look intently at the executives, now unsure. Company executive number one. You don't have to go. We can call this entire thing off right now. Thomas. But, but my, my wife is out there still. Silence. Automated female voice. Attention, USS Merchant departs in 13 Pacific time, Earth minutes. Executive number one. We know your wife is out there, Thomas. Thank you for that reminder. We are sorry about this entire situation. As you know, this mission was contingent upon you securing Ellen Ripley. You did so. How, we're not sure, but here you both are. Company executive number two looks at Ripley, concerned about her near catatonic silence. He says nothing. Executive number one rises. Executive number one. Come, it's time to leave. Executive number two rises along with Thomas. Ripley remains seated still in silence. Thomas stares at her with hope in his eyes. Thomas. Ripley? Cut to interior, USS Merchant, cockpit. Ripley, Thomas, Flight Officer John Barton and his wife, Christy Barton, are strapped in as the USS Merchant slowly pulls away from Gateway Station. The USS Merchant is almost rectangle, rectangular in size, not an identifiable ship. Slowly the ship leaves Earth's atmosphere, the space station getting smaller and smaller. The ship shakes. Officer John Barton, a well-built, blonde man of 37, pays no attention to the turbulence, nor does his wife, Chrissy, a very small woman of 28. Officer John Barton. This won't last long. Then we can take a breath for a while. Thomas's eyes are closed, never enjoying space flight and the sickness he seemed to get each time. Ripley stares off into the vast dark space ahead, confused, almost scared. The turbulence lessens and then stops. Officer Barton continues. There we are. He unbuckles his safety belt, getting up quickly. Officer Barton continues. Okay, it's safe. We'll be cruising from here on out. Ripley. How many? John turns his head back, surprised by the sound of Ripley's voice. John. How many what? Ripley. How many passengers can this ship hold? John looks at his wife, who is already staring back at him, puzzled by the question. Percy Barton. Well, 30 total, I believe. But even after we pick up the science team, we'll still... Let's see, only about eight in all. Percy shoots another look to her husband. John. Why do you ask? Ripley unbuckles her safety belt and gets up and looks intently into John's eyes, searching for any dishonesty. Ripley. Everyone needs a way home. Ripley exits the cockpit. 
Cut to Interior, USS Merchant, Barton's Quarters. Later. Percy comes out of a small bathroom located in the center of the captain's quarter suite. Percy is drying her long black hair with a towel. John lays in bed, shirtless, toned. Percy. What do you think of her? John. The woman? Percy. Yeah. John. I don't know yet. She's got something going on inside that head of hers. Percy. She seems strange to me. Her being on this mission seems strange. John. Well, I guess she knows something, otherwise she wouldn't be here. Now come here. John pats the bed beside him. Percy smiles at him, continuing to dry her hair. Cut to interior, USS Merchant, Mess Hall. Ripley and Thomas sit quietly. Thomas aggressively eats food on a tray before him. Ripley pokes at her food with a fork, her thoughts elsewhere. Thomas breaks his concentration and focuses on Ripley. Thomas. Uh, I'm sorry. Ripley doesn't look up. Thomas continues. You were my only hope. Maybe I won't see my wife again. I couldn't bear that. I, I love her. Ripley cuts Thomas off. Ripley. Thomas? Thomas. Yeah. Ripley. It's okay. Stop reasoning with me. Thomas stares at Ripley, who is returning his glare. Thomas. Can I ask you a question? Ripley turns her eyes back to her food plate. Thomas continues. Why did you come? You could have stayed on Earth living your life with your cats. You could have been happy. Ripley pretends she didn't hear that before looking back at Thomas. Ripley. I, well, I don't have an easy answer to that question. Silence. Ripley continues. I've never felt comfortable anywhere, and as strange as this sounds, the closer I am to those things, the more at home I feel, I guess. Thomas stares at Ripley like she's spoken a foreign language. Thomas. That's fucked up. Ripley laughs her first laugh. Ripley. Yeah, I guess it is. Cut to interior, USS Merchant, Ripley's quarters, later. Ripley lies on her bed, blankets around her. She slowly opens her eyes and rolls over onto Hicks. Hicks' eyes are closed. He's older, at peace. Hicks opens his eyes as Ripley positions her head on his chest. Hicks. What is it? What's wrong? Ripley doesn't answer as she listens to the sound of Hicks' heart beating. Hicks moves around, bringing Ripley's head to himself. Hicks continues. Tell me. Ripley seems lost in this fantasy of a life with Hicks as she stares into his eyes. Ripley. I'm going back to find her. Hicks. I who? Ripley sits up, moving away from Hicks. Ripley. Newt, she's still there. An overhead speaker beeps on. John, over the speaker. Okay, everyone, it's that time. Please report to deck two. It's freezer time. Ripley hears the message and then looks back to her bed. Hicks is gone. Ripley looks around her small quarters for any sign of Hicks. There are none. Cut to interior, USS Merchant, deck two, three months later. Ripley, Thomas, Prissy, and John Barton all lie motionless encased in very angular, slim cryotubes, very different from the large, cumbersome version from Aliens. Cut to exterior, USS Merchant, space. 
The large ship slowly moves towards LV-426, now very dark and cloudy. Cut to Interior, USS Merchant, Deck 2. A female automated voice enables. Female automated voice. Approaching Lars Variant's colony. Crew, awaken. Interior lights in the deck flicker on as the cryotube lids rise slowly. Air blows and moves hanging jackets. The bodies of the crew move slowly as they come back to reality. Cut to Interior, USS Merchant, Cockpit. John and Chrissy navigate the ship into the planet's atmosphere. John. You got it? Chrissy. I think so. Can't see well. John. Get the defrost. Chrissy. It's not the defrost, it's the atmosphere. Oh, here, wait. There we go. We're through the worst of it. Cut to exterior, USS Merchant, LV-426. The planet is overrun with destruction. The atmosphere processors from aliens are now half of what they were. The remnants of the colony are all but a myth, save for a few structures. The merchant slowly flies over an atmosphere processor. The sky is dark. Cut to interior, USS Merchant, passenger deck. Ripley stares at a monitor at the vaguely familiar settings of the planet. The video feed is intermittent, choppy because of the planet's atmosphere. Ripley turns away from the monitor, resting her head on the back of her seat. There across from her, looking intently in her eyes, is Vasquez, older, long straight hair, red bandana, still very butch. Vasquez. You ready, Mia? Ripley. For what? Vasquez. This is it. We're not coming back. Ripley closes her eyes for about five seconds before reopening them. On opening them, Ripley sees that Vasquez has gone. Ripley closes her eyes again. Cut to exterior, LV-426, on the outside of the USS Merchant, daytime. Ripley, Thomas, John, and Chrissy, now dressed in white life suits, make their way from a lower platform extended from the belly of the Merchant. Thomas points to a small, lone, dark gray structure about 300 yards. John. There, straight ahead. That's base camp. That's where we're headed. Ripley walks far behind the caravan in a daze, her walk unsteady. Thomas, far ahead of her, turns to look back, stopping, waiting for her to catch up. Ripley comes to a stop, sitting down on the ground. Far ahead, John turns around and sees Ripley on the ground. Percy turns around as well. Percy. What's wrong? John. I don't know. John. I don't know. Thomas? Silence. John. Thomas, is everything okay? Thomas continues to make his way to Ripley, who at this point is just staring at the ground aimlessly. Ripley looks up as Thomas approaches, but it's Dallas, older, but still salt and pepper beard and hair. Dallas. Ripley, what's wrong? Ripley looks puzzled. Ripley. Dallas? Dallas. Ripley, come on, it's time to go. You're holding everyone up. Ripley takes one of Dallas's arms, pulling it down to her. Ripley. Here, sit with me. Thomas slash Dallas sits down next to Ripley. Ripley continues. I can't. I can't go ahead. You go without me. I'll wait for the team in the ship. Tell Kane to be careful. 
Thomas. Kane? Ripley, what's wrong? Who are these people? Ripley stares intently into Dallas's eyes that slowly fade into the curious and vacant eyes of Thomas. Thomas continues. Ripley, who are these people? We have to go. It'll be night soon. Not safe for us. Ripley continues to stare at Thomas, trying to find a hint of Dallas. Thomas grabs Ripley's arms, helping her up. John approaches. John. She okay? Thomas. I don't know. She's acting weird. She thinks I'm someone else. John helps Thomas, assisting Ripley up. John. Come on, let's go. We have to get base camp before dark. Ripley is wobbly on her legs, unsure of her surroundings. Thomas and John slowly help Ripley to the base camp structure. Prissy approaches the three. Prissy. What's wrong? Officer John Barton. Not sure. We have to get her indoors. Thomas. I think she's just disoriented. Prissy. Maybe it's atmosphere sickness. John. Let's hurry. Can't see a goddamn thing out here. They all make their way slowly into base camp. Cut to interior base camp. The structure is darkened. There's a main foyer with a hallway leading to different doors. At the end of the hallway is a glass door with the words mess hall debriefing printed in bold. John sees the door. John. There, let's move her there. Cut to interior mess hall debriefing. Ripley is set down on a long white couch that lines the wall of the room. In the middle of the room is a long table with white chairs. On the far right of the room is a cafeteria-like counter, darkened, empty, with a visible kitchen behind glass doors. Thomas. Where is everyone? Percy walks over to a computer console next to the entrance to the room. She begins typing codes in. As she does, slowly, lights in the room and base camp begin to come on. An automated voice enables. Female automated voice. Base camp systems online. Please enter parameter operations. Percy. There we go. Percy looks at Ripley, who is now sleeping on the couch. Percy continues. Looks like she's out. John and Thomas both look at Ripley. A few hours later, Ripley slowly opens her eyes to see Prissy Barton's face smiling into hers. Prissy is taking Ripley's blood pressure and checking her pulse. Prissy. How are we? Ripley. What What happened? Prissy. You weren't making any sense. Then you passed out. Ripley. How long have I been out? Prissy looks over to a clock near the entrance door. Prissy. About, about five hours. Ripley sits up and notices what Prissy is doing. Prissy continues. I'm just checking your vitals. How long have you been getting these spells? Ripley stares at Prissy, puzzled. Ripley. I haven't. This this has never happened to me before. Where are the others? Prissy finishes examining Ripley and begins packing up the medical equipment. Prissy. Are you going to be able to continue? Ripley. Yeah, I'm just a little bit dizzy. Ripley looks around again, staring through the glass entrance door. Ripley continues. What is this place? I'm confused. Percy gets up and walks to a medic cabinet and places the equipment inside. Percy. 
This is the base of operations for all Weyland Yutani missions. Chrissy continues. This specific building connects to several tunnels that lead to the lower levels of the planet. Ripley. But it was destroyed. This planet was destroyed. Chrissy. I don't know what you're talking about. Ripley. This planet, the Lars Variance, or whatever the hell it's called, was destroyed years ago. I thought it was blown from orbit. Chrissy. Oh, that. Well, I don't know too much about what happened there except for what's transcribed in company records. What I do know is that this planet wasn't nuked, albeit Hadley's Hope Colony and the atmosphere processors that had been in operations for almost 20 years were destroyed. When that happened, Lars Variance was quarantined for the next 40 years. No one was allowed back. Ripley. Why would anyone want to come back here? Chrissy stares at Ripley, expecting her to know the answer to this question. Chrissy. You don't know? Ripley. No. Chrissy. This planet is the same home world to the, the, the Mobius strain. Ripley's eyes widen. Excuse me? John enters the room abruptly. Ripley continues. I'm lost. John. Lost? Who's lost? John walks over and takes a seat next to his wife, Prissy. I'm trying to debrief Ripley on the history of Lars Variance. Maybe you could help me out. John's sort of an expert on this planet. He's been here dozens of times on company business. I've been trying to describe the the Mobius string. John. Ah, oh, yes. Ripley. What exactly is going on? John. Thought you were briefed at Gateway. Ripley. We were, but it was General. Officer John Barton. Well, Ellen, if I can call you Ellen, let me give you the short and sweet version. This planet is the Mobius strain's home world. Whale and Yutani didn't discover this until years later, after, for all intents and purposes, the original Ellen Ripley took off as a colony and everything that was that had been established here was blown to kingdom come. Forty years after that incident, a science team was sent back to investigate the monetary damage, atmospheric conditions, and company interests. Well, as you'll probably guess, the science team never returned. A second team was sent out, armed and ready. The second team did return, but with knowledge that would have basically quarantined the planet from the network known worlds. The science team discovered hundreds or perhaps thousands of tunnels all leading underground. The first team, unprepared, took off into the tunnels with flashlights, some minor firepower, and not much else. They all died. Ripley. Do they still want the creatures? John. Who, Whaley and Tawny? Ripley. Yes. John. No, that directive was abandoned years ago. Ripley. What about USM? Chrissy rolls her eyes, shaking her head. Chrissy. Those people. John. Officially, there is no United Systems military. The Riga, that ship and the experiment that you brought back, was not a company or government-sanctioned experiment. Ripley. Dr. Reese said that the company is no more. John. Well, let's just say this. Wayland Yutani, as it was known to you when you worked for them as a flight officer, is no longer. However, the Whale Yutani subsidiaries is still very much alive and well operating under the name GSD or Government Science Division, supervised by the military. Ripley. So why the experiments? 
how did the Auriga have the capability to do what it did? John. The Auriga was a control ship for the United Systems military, basically a renegade militia that broken off a network of known worlds. They came across a vial of your blood during an investigative mission to Fioriana 161. John continues. It seems the company, despite its reputation for in-and-out jobs, failed to clean up. Your blood was taken and experiments began. It took them, from my research, 60 years to get you here. And you were just the byproduct. Now, there's no United Systems military. There's only you. Ripley. My God. Percy. It all seems so frightening. Ripley. How do you know so much? John. Been a private contractor with Waylon Tani for ten years. In fact, that's how I met my wife. Percy smiles. John continues. As I've mentioned, I've been to Lars Variants dozens of times. I was hired because I owned my own ship. I was briefed in depth on the planet, its history, you, everything. I must say, meeting you is somewhat of a thrill for me. Thomas bursts in the room. All eyes turn to him. Thomas. I found them. They took the Dargan Tunnel to the third level of the planet. Cut to interior, base camp, hallway. The group of four are once again suited up. Each of the suits has a light on the interior and exterior of their clear bubble mask. John. So now comes the tough part. First of all, we must all stick together. We're taking the Dargan Tunnel. John continues. The exception of our helmets and the light rods, there will be no source of light. If we separate, then that's it. Ripley? Ripley looks to John. John continues. You have to guide us. Your biosignal will throw off any potential threats initially. If we should be attacked by the strain, they'll at least be thrown off by you. That is why you're here. Thomas. Will it work? John. I don't know. Hope so. Ripley takes a deep breath. Ripley. What the hell am I doing here? John smiles at Ripley, hearing her remark. John. So, are we ready? No one answers. John continues. We should reach level three in two hours if we keep a steady pace. Let's move out. Ripley, you can take the lead. Ripley walks slowly in front of the group. Ripley. Which way? John. Straight ahead and left, the door at the end of the hallway. Ripley reaches the door. John moves to her left, punching buttons. Door opens. John continues. There we are. Cut to interior, darkened tunnel. Ripley enters the tunnel. Black. Silence. A gentle cool breeze blows up. Ripley turns on her light stick, which accents the lights on her life suit. Ripley's movements are slow and cautious. Her interior suit radio crackles on. John. Just keep straight ahead. There will be many connecting tunnels. It's the main one we're concerned with. Ripley's breathing intensifies. Her flashlight shines down the tunnel, black on either side, earthen wooden path she walks. Ripley. I can't see a goddamn thing. John. Welcome to Darden Tunnel. Thomas. Lord help me. Proceed. Lord help us all. The caravan of four continues on. 
Their lights begin to fade as they walk further out of sight down into the tunnel. The sound rings out, maybe a hiss, maybe a slither, far off in the distance. Ripley pauses, her eyes dance. The sound is familiar, familial. An hour later, the group is still walking, Ripley still ahead, John behind, followed by Prissy, and finally Thomas. Thomas. Should we have reached Junction by now? John. Dunno, never taken this route. Prissy pushes a button on the breastplate of her life suit, a schematic that is, excuse me, Prissy pushes a button on the breastplate of her life suit. A schematic that reads Dargan Tunnel appears on the interior of her helmet. Prissy continues to push buttons. The schematic moves and changes shape until finally revealing four red dots slowly moving in an outline of the tunnel. Prissy types in distance. Seconds later, the display spits out numbers. Prissy. We have an hour to go. Thomas sighs, audibly heard by all because of the radio. John. We'll be down there in no time, Thomas. Relax. Thomas turns his radio down through an adjustment on his breastplate. Thomas. You calm down. A sound rings out again, only heard by Thomas. He stops, looks around with his flashlight. The others keep walking ahead, not realizing that Thomas has become distracted. Thomas continues looking around with his light stick. Another moment passes. Thomas realizes he's been left behind. His breathing increases. He runs towards the others, panicking. Thomas continues. Shit, shit, shit. Thomas catches up to Prissy, nearly running into her. Prissy turns around, startled. Prissy. You all right? Thomas doesn't reply as he gathers his composure quickly. An hour later, Ripley continues to lead the group. By this point, she is steady, focused, light stick pointed straight ahead. Thomas should have been there by now. Thomas is visibly nervous, sweat on his forehead, his helmet fogged up, his breaths rapid. Percy stops checking the schematics on her helmet. Thomas looks behind him, pointing his light stick. Something scampers by his light with lightning speed. Percy. John, Thomas is right. We're off course. Thomas. Oh my god. Everyone turns around. John. What is it, Thomas? Thomas. Oh my god. Oh god. Thomas runs, passing Prissy, John, and Ripley. John pursues him. John. Thomas, wait. Only Thomas's helmet light is seen in a streak. John continues. Thomas, hold on. Thomas. We, we, we gotta get out of here. They're here. They're everywhere. John continues his pursuit, finally grabbing Thomas's suit, pulling him back mid-gate. They both fall over. Ripley is unaffected by this team. Slowly, she sits down in the middle of the tunnel. Prissy, watching Ripley concerned, walks over. Prissy. Are you okay? Ripley looks up at Prissy, smiling. Ripley. Yeah, a little tired. There's no point in running after John, is there? Then you'll have to run after me. Percy laughs, taking a seat next to Ripley. Ripley notices the ease of Percy's countenance around her and is puzzled by it. Had she actually made a friend? Percy. Thomas is claustrophobic, has a speech impediment, and a hell of a case of clinical anxiety. Ripley laughs. Ripley. What a great choice for this rescue mission. 
Chrissy smiles. Well, Chrissy. Thomas. Well, Thomas may have his issues, but he loves his wife. Despite all of his fears and phobias, he has chosen to walk into something that, for all intents and purposes, is his nightmare. Ripley is visibly uncomfortable with the word love. Prissy notices. Prissy fumbles with the control panel on her breastplate once again. The Dargan Tunnel schematic map appears. Ripley watches. Ripley. Where are we? Prissy. I'm not even really sure. We haven't gone this far before. Ripley. Weren't we supposed to go straight? Prissy. Yes, well, that was the plan. Prissy continues. There we are. The schematic map blinks, making a digital noise. Prissy's helmet goes blank. Prissy continues. Right beneath it, right under the main hole. Ripley looks around, pointing her light stick. Ripley. The main hole of what? Prissy. The derelict. It's right above us. John lies on the tunnel floor next to Thomas. Both men breathe heavily. John's hand is on Thomas's shoulder. John. What did you see? Thomas. I, I saw I, I saw John. You saw what, Thomas? Relax. Take a breath. Thomas. It moved by my light. It was there. It was there. It, it was there. John. What was it? Thomas. I, I, I don't know. It was there. It was there. John's breathing stabilizes. He gets up slowly and helps Thomas with him. John. Come on. Thomas. I don't want to go back there. John. You don't have to. Thomas. I just want to stay here. John. Can't do that, Thomas. We gotta keep moving. Thomas. No. John. Thomas, Sue is waiting for you. She needs you. Thomas looks at John intently, his eyes full of tears. Thomas. I miss her. I... I... John puts his hand on Thomas's shoulder. Thomas falls into John's chest, paralyzed by his fear. Weary. John is startled by this display of male affection, but tolerates it. John. We're close. She's waiting for you. Thomas breathes deeply, pulling away from John. John continues. She's waiting for you. Thomas takes another deep breath and walks towards where Ripley and Prissy are. Prissy looks at Thomas, noticing his watered eyes. Prissy. You okay? Thomas. Yeah. Prissy. We have to walk further. John. Where are we? Prissy. Below the derelict. John. Why don't we just go back? Prissy. Because if we go up and through the derelict, we can make our way to Junction and hopefully Thomas's wife much faster. She might even be stationed there. John. You sure? Prissy gets up, followed by Ripley. Prissy. Maybe. I'm always sure. John. Okay, let's get a move on. Thomas, you stay behind, Ripley. The group resumes their journey. Their lights flicker. Twenty minutes later, Ripley, still leading the caravan, comes to a fork in the tunnel. She stops. Ripley. 
Which way? Proceed. Left. Take the left tunnel. That leads to the derelict, which will eventually spill out to Junction. Ripley takes the left tunnel. The shape of the tunnel is slightly different, organic, poetic, only slightly. Ripley notices, senses the change, and looks around. Thomas follows, not noticing, cautious, concerned, yet focused. John follows, lastly, by Prissy. John. You, sir? Prissy smiles. Prissy. Smartass. Fifteen minutes later. The four walk rhythmically. Suddenly and without warning, the light sticks go dead and the lights inside the life suits go out. Blackness. Breathing. Thomas's breathing is labored as he tries to suppress his anxiety. Thomas. I'm all right. I'm all right. It's just the dark. John. What's happening, Prissy? Prissy. Dunno. Maybe we're under Junction's generator. If you're too close, the magnets absorb any electrical engine energy source. Thomas. Shit, shit. Who the fuck am I kidding? It's fucking black as a cancerous asshole in here. When will the lights come back on? Proceed. You have to keep moving forward. The lights will come back. Thomas. Oh, sure. Keep moving. How the hell do we see where we walk? A small glimmer of light throbs on. Ripley is rested up against the wall of the tunnel. Her eyes are closed. Newt. Ripley? Ripley's eyes flutter beneath their lids. Newt continues. Ripley. Ripley slowly opens her eyes. There in front of her is Newt, fully grown, long blonde hair, soft face, very much reminiscent of the girl seen in Aliens. Ripley smiles. Newt continues. Ripley, we have to keep moving. Ripley is now puzzled by Newt's presence. Ripley. Who are you? Do I know you? Newt. Mom. Mommy? Ripley closes her eyes. Prissy is talking to Ripley. The light sticks are on, as is everyone's life suits. John and Thomas stand watching. Thomas. Is she okay? No one answers. Thomas continues. We can't continue without her, so she has to be okay. Is she okay? Prissy looks up at Thomas, who is now agitated. Prissy. Thomas, chill out. Come on, come on. What's her name again? Thomas. Ripley. Ellen Ripley. Prissy. Ellen. Ellen, come on. Ripley is disoriented, mumbling, not making sense. John. What'd she say? Ripley. Newt, I have to find her. They don't kill you. They don't kill you. She's alive. She's alive. Prissy repositions herself so she's staring right into Ripley's eyes. Prissy. Ellen. Ellen, look at me. Come on. Look at me. Snap out of it. Thomas. It's so dark in here. I can barely see my hand. Prissy. Shut up, Thomas. Ellen, talk to me. Ripley's eyes focus and refocus. Her head begins to sway. Her body follows suit as she falls over unconscious. Cut to interior, derelict spacecraft, cockpit. Ripley slowly opens her eyes. The dim light from the craft slowly creep into her eyes as she focuses and refocuses on the biomechanical crumbling walls of the ship. Prissy is standing directly over Ripley. Prissy. Ellen? 
Mom? Ripley blinks her eyes, standing over her as Lambert. Lambert is older, but similar to the way she looked in Alien. Lambert's look is disapproving of Ripley. Lambert. Look at you. You're no use to anyone. Ripley moves her mouth, as if mumbling a reply but not speaking. Lambert continues. Get up. Did you hear me? I said, get the fuck up, you bitch. Lambert begins to strangle Ripley. Ripley's eyes close, rolling back. Prissy kneels over Ripley. Prissy. Ripley, Ripley, you must wake up. Ripley's eyes flutter and then open. Her pupils find their rightful place. Ripley. Where are we? Prissy. Slow down. Take it easy. Ripley takes a breath and breathes it out, fogging up her helmet. Prissy continues. Are you okay? Ripley. Yeah, I guess. Prissy. This is the second of these spells we've had. This one lasted 45 minutes. Ripley. What happened? Where are we? Prissy. We moved you when you lost consciousness. You lost energy in the tunnel. It's somewhat normal. The magnetic energy, the derelict's core absorbed everything we had. Ripley gets up, looking around. The chamber is exactly like it was an alien. The walls have decayed slightly, and the space jockey has been excavated from his chair. Prissy observes Ripley's wonderment. Prissy continues. Amazing, isn't it? Ripley. What is this place? I I know it. Prissy. This is Genesis, the derelict. Ripley. Where, where the nightmare started and became me. Ripley turns around. She senses something. Ripley walks towards Prissy. Ripley continues. We have to leave. We can't be here. Prissy. Why? Ripley. It's dangerous here. They're close. Prissy smiles, putting her hand on Ripley's shoulder. Prissy. It's all right. We're fine. Ripley. No, we're not. Prissy. Yes, we are. Prissy points left to an adjoining passageway. Prissy continues. Junction is just over there. Ripley follows Prissy's pointing finger. Thomas comes running out of the passageway, panicked, labored breaths. Thomas. She's gone. She's not there. No one's there. John follows quickly out of the passageway. John. He's right. It's deserted. But the power's on. Percy walks towards the junction passageway. Cut to interior junction. Cut to interior junction. Passageway is enlarged with a plexiglass octagonal structure in the center. Structure is 10 feet high and 100 feet in width. Every chamber is visible with lights positioned in small corners. The door of the structure is open, revealing a small laboratory and several adjoining small bedroom quarters. The laboratory is bright with fluorescent lighting, illuminating the rest of the structure and the adjoining tunnel entryways. Prissy enters. John hesitates behind her. John. Prissy, wait. It may not be safe. Prissy continues in. Prissy. It's clear, John. They won't come this far up anymore. John looks around a bit before following Prissy. Cut to interior junction. John finds Prissy in the laboratory. John. What do you mean they won't come up this far? Prissy quickly scans hours of digital journal entries at a console at the end of the examination table. Prissy. The whole exterior of the section is protected by an outer coolant. 
Hmm. John. What? What coolant? Percy. Yes, surrounded, surrounding junction, part of the derelict, is a big freezer. They don't like the cold. They retreat from it like fire or bullets. Look here. John closes in, peeking at the journal entries as they fly by. John. My God. Percy. Thomas's wife has been busy. So many discoveries, so much text. She's insane. Thomas walks in. Thomas. Or a genius. John and Prissy suddenly turn around. Prissy. Thomas. Thomas. I think I know where she's gone to. John. And how would you know that? Thomas. Sue's a digger. Nothing stops her. She'll explore all she can. Prissy looks around. Prissy. Where's Ellen? Ripley. I'm here. Thomas. She's laying down in one of the rooms. John stretches his arms. John. Sounds good to me. Thomas. No, no, we have to find Sue. We can't stop now. Percy. Thomas, we don't know where your wife is or how far down she's gone. We need to stay put. If I can read over her entries, perhaps we can estimate an exact location. We could walk for days down there without clues to where we're headed. The further we go down, the less likely we're going to come back. Thomas looks around at the lab. Thomas. I, I, I'll go by myself then. Thomas makes for the door, but not before John tugs on his shoulder. John. Thomas, wait. Think about what you're doing. Thomas tries to pull away. Thomas. I am thinking about it. I, I, I'm going after my wife. John pulls Thomas around. Both men face each other. John. Good. You better think about her because if you leave us and go it alone, that's all you'll have is the thought of her. You'll end up dead just like the others. Thomas's eyes widen at these words. His breathing slows. Thomas. But what if she's lost or trapped? John has no answer. Prissy. She's out there, Thomas, and she's okay. Sue's a fighter, right? That's what you said to me, a fighter. Thomas breathes deeply again. Prissy takes his hands. Prissy continues. Thomas, we're going to find her and be out of here before you know it. I promise you. Thomas smiles and then removes his helmet. Interior junction, a few hours later. John and Prissy lie together in a small cot. Curtain is pulled, covering all the exposed walls of the room. A single yellow light illuminates the intimate setting. Percy lies on top of John. Percy. I'm nervous. John caresses her face. John. Don't be nervous. Percy. You're not? John slides Percy off of him as he sits up. John. Not particularly. Percy. How can you not be? John. I don't know. I haven't thought about it, I guess. John leans in to kiss Prissy. Prissy gives him her cheek. John notices. John. What's that about? Prissy. I told you, I'm nervous. John lightly grabs Prissy's waist. John. I know what'll ease your nerves. Percy looks at John. They communicate without speaking. 
Prissy smiles. John starts to kiss Prissy, slowly unbuttoning her shirt. Prissy responds in kind, kissing John back. Cut to interior junction, Ripley's chamber. Ripley lies on her bed, listening to the sounds of love just opposite. Her eyes start around in her head as she tries to understand the interaction just beyond the curtain. Cut to interior junction, John and Prissy's chamber. Prissy is now only in a tank top t-shirt and her undershorts. John is completely on top of her nude, his lips making their way towards Prissy's breasts. Prissy pushes John off. John. What? What's wrong? Prissy. When are we gonna, I mean... John. When are we gonna what? Prissy. Have a baby. John sits right up. John. Whoa, where'd that come from? Prissy. I came from being married to you for five years and wanting a normal life. No more missions, no more spaceships. Just a home, kids, you know. John sits just staring at Prissy blank. Prissy continues. So that's it? You can't say anything? John. Just give me a second. Prissy looks around and grabs her shirt, putting it on quickly. John continues. Shit. Proceed. What? John. I'm not getting any tonight. Percy's face contorts as she becomes angry. She gets up to leave the chamber. John continues. Baby, come on. I'm sorry. We can talk about it. I'll give you a baby if it means that much to you. Percy turns to look back. Percy. Well, thank you, sir, for the consideration. Percy opens the door. John. Where are you going? Percy walks out. Percy. Check on Ellen. Put some clothes on. Ripley lies in her bed, her life suit hung up on a hook on the door. The room is similar to the small room in Alien, where she ran to on the shuttle in the final moments. Ripley's eyes are closed. There's a knock on the door. Ripley opens her eyes, and Percy walks in quietly. Percy continues. Ellen? Ripley slowly sits up. Is everything okay? Ripley. Shouldn't I be asking you that? Percy, embarrassed begins to smile. Percy. You heard? Ripley. A little. Percy sighs. She looks down at Ripley's bed. Percy. May I sit? Ripley nods, barely smiling. Percy sits down. Percy continues. How are you feeling? Ripley breathes deeply. Ripley. Okay, I guess. Better since I've had some sleep. Percy. Any more blackouts? Ripley. I don't think so. Percy smiles and then searches for something else to say before noticing Ripley's fingernails. Dark, elongated, Ripley notices. Ripley. Like them? I can tell you where to get a set just like them. Curry and special. Percy laughs nervously. Ripley continues. I'm afraid I've been a little used to this mission. Percy looks at Ripley, not disagreeing, a moment of silence. Percy. Do you have any children? A husband? Ripley just looks at Prissy intently, seriously. Prissy continues. I'll take that as a no. Prissy shifts and then gets up to leave. Prissy continues. I'm sorry, I guess I'm the one not feeling well. Ripley reaches out, pulling Prissy. Ripley. Stay, please. 
Chrissy turns around a bit startled. Chrissy. Okay. Ripley. I don't often have conversation. Chrissy sits down again. Ripley continues. I have seen... I've been seeing people, I think. Chrissy. During your blackouts? Ripley. I think so. I can't be sure. Chrissy slides forward, closer to Ripley. Chrissy. Do you know who they are? Ripley. They seem familiar. When I see them, I know them. I can't tell you how I know them. Chrissy. But you think they're real? Ripley. I think they were real at one time. I'm not crazy. Chrissy. I didn't say you were. Ripley. So you're not content with this life? Chrissy. What? Ripley. I heard your conversation. Chrissy turns her head a little bit of shame of her nakedness. Ripley. I'm sorry, I wasn't trying to listen. Chrissy. No, it's okay. Usually when John and I talk about anything other than work, it turns into a fight. That bastard. Ripley. Doesn't he love you? Chrissy. Yes. Yes, yes he does. And I love him. I'm just tired of this. Tired of space travel. Tired of operating consoles. Chrissy continues. I, I just want to have a baby and be through with all of this. Ripley doesn't react. Chrissy continues. This must sound stupid to you. Ripley. I didn't say it was stupid. Chrissy. Did you ever want a baby? Ripley. I had a baby once. Chrissy's eyes light up. Chrissy. You did? What happened? Ripley. The doctors botched the delivery. It died shortly after. The whole thing was unfortunate and badly handled by the company who owned it. Chrissy. I'm sorry. Ripley. Don't be. Chrissy. What'd you have? A, a boy or a girl? Ripley. I never knew. Chrissy continues. Oh. Cut to interior junction, Thomas's chamber, 3 a.m. A sound. Thomas wakes up suddenly. Thomas's breathing is labored, and he's sweating. The walls are covered by curtain that wraps around on a pole. Thomas sits up quickly. Cut to interior junction, kitchen. Thomas fumbles through small white empty refrigerators. Thomas. Fuck. The end. <laughs> All right. Nice. That was interesting. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny hearing it read. Um, uh, what I, I don't, I, I trying to figure out what I was going after when I wrote that. I mean, I liked this, this story better than I liked the other story because I felt like it took the characters into that kind of desolate setting that Ridley Scott mm -hmm. introduced in Alien. Um, and kind of they took him into the dark and it took him back to LV-426. And obviously there was some similar setup there with um, the Gateway, Ripley's going back to Gateway Station. Again, it seems familiar, but of course she, her memories have been there, but she hasn't been there, you know? Um, but, uh, and I was just was really trying to kind of toss things on their head a little bit. Um, and bring it back to that quietness and exploration of Alien, um, and a little bit Alien 3. Um, yeah. And I like this idea that this Ripley, um, she's kind of fading away, 
you know, um, mm -hmm. and I wanted to explore her in a different way. I wanted to explore her character in a way that was, I don't know, more reverent um, and less the crazy monster, more of, no, this is, these are the effects of, of when you meddle with cloning and all that kind of thing. So. Right. Yeah. It seems to me like um, this screenplay would have been more of a drama than was more common to the Alien saga, which 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 I'm fine with because Alien is really to me about the human element behind yes. it and the suffering that Ripley goes through, because ultimately suffering is what gives us humanity, I think. Um, and then in the context of the Alien saga. This really explores just not only the humanity of the clone Ripley, but the humanity of Ripley herself as a whole, you know, the original Ripley. And she's, the, Ripley number eight starting to come to terms with the fact that she is a clone. Yeah. And that she might have a genetic disorder or mental health problems. And she's starting to fabricate these hallucinations in which she realizes um, that people from her past are trying to bring her back there and she's stuck between wanting to be strong enough to get past that or to discover what it's all about because in the screenplay you wrote that she knows who these people are but she can't put a name to the face yeah. so she still has that memory stuck in her head of who these people are and obviously they're older now and and that kind of thing but she knows who they are she just she can't put a finger to it yeah totally. so totally. i think that's what really that's what really um stuck out for me is um all the ties to the previous alien films um which, which i thought was very well done this was a very good script i wish it was longer oh yeah it was it was unfinished, and really, um, my idea was in terms of finishing it, um, they were going to eventually, um, find Sue, Thomas's wife. Sue was going to be yeah. six months pregnant, um, because she had left. There was there's some there's some issues in this script with continuity and time continuity, but whatever. When it was all taken care of, Thomas was going to discover his wife. Um, in some tunnel, studying these creatures fervently. She's fervent. She's kind of almost in love with these creatures. Um, but, yeah. uh, but she's six months pregnant, kind of big and walking around. Um, and it's this idea of new life coming and new life passing. And this would be really, Ripley was eventually going to kind of fade away in and die in a tunnel. Um, as mm -hmm. kind of these moments, these genetic memories kind of... Um, take her further and further and further away from, you know, uh, Thomas and everyone else. Thomas would eventually yeah. die. Um, and so what would happen is then Sue, Prissy, and John would end up being the survivors. And they would um, end up leaving um, as kind of junction crumbled and the infrastructure mm. of LV-426 crumbled um, because the planet yeah. was unstable. The, pl the That's very symbolic. I like that. Yeah, um, and you know, I was really, really excited about this script um, more than I was, like I said before, of the Alien Rising script. Um, I just felt like it was more true to who I felt like Ripley was, and I had to kind of, I had to kind of realize that this isn't the Ripley that I 
that I loved in the first three. This is a different person, so I have to explore that person. And sometimes you want to kind of make her, there's a tendency to kind of make her into the other Ripley. She isn't that one. She's this new person. Right. And she's got these memories. So we've she's got things that we can connect to, um, but she isn't that person. And then it's, it's her asking, it's her own questions. Who am I? Who are we without our memories? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like kind of some little philosophical things going on there. But obviously the alien... It's real slow in the first hour, um, the first sixty pages, and then the, the second, the last sixty pages would be then um, these kind of these aliens slinking around in these black tunnels, and you don't know where they are. Um, it, was, yeah. it would be different than the other alien films where you kind of know where they are, you can kind of see them. This one, the lights go out, and they're in these tunnels alone, um, mm-hmm. and you hear them, you hear slinking, you hear slithering or whatever, but you don't know where they are, um, which I thought would really make it scary um because how do you make right. the alien scary again you don't ever show it i mean eventually you would see right. it but it, essentially that was kind of how it was going to end i was really really excited about it of course 21 years old writing the script thinking oh my god maybe i'll get this made you know <laughs> <laughs> Star, stars in my eyes but uh <laughs> thank you guys for reading it uh what did you think thank Ryan? you for uh thanks for sharing it with us for sure yeah what do you yeah, think about Ryan? it yeah, I enjoy it. It's definitely uh, um, definitely a character character study, and um, and it really touched upon themes like you said of who we are or what what am I? Um, kind of similar to the um, android or replicant themes that you see in Alien and Blade Runner. Um, like it, since she's a clone, it, she kind of questions her herself, um, and um, at least we start seeing and with all these visions um you know of the original ripley and but uh but she's not the same you know it's it's just uh it was really interesting i thought uh you know it was um yeah it was really well written i mean you know a lot better than joss whedon's script (laughs) (laughs) well i don't i don't think that's uh that's too hard to accomplish (laughs) here nor there i've debated about finishing it but uh really uh that was a different time for me i i uh and Mm -hmm. you know it's funny as if we were reading it to be honest with you guys i was a little bit like i'm done with ripley um Mm. i've i've i i think if neil blomkamp ends up making his film um I won't. I'll be interested. I'll be excited. I'll. I won't be able to sleep. I'll be that excited, but I'm done. Uh, I've gone as far yeah. with her as I can. I'm more excited about the the prospect of of discovery and alien covenant, um, and opening this world a little bit wider um, than following this one woman um, and her story. I think her story's over. Um, it, you know, certainly if Blumkin yeah. gets her way, but uh, I really that's what I was thinking. I was like, and I think I really feel like I wrote Ripley that way in this story that her yeah. time was done, you know, um, mm-hmm. and that things were kind of happening around her that were larger than her. And I did have an explanation. I mean, I explained Wayland Yutani and they're kind of, they, they didn't disappear. They are around still. Um, they're just kind of a different type of form. Um, but I also wanted to make a point, like we talk about the company kind of coming to grips with, yes, we've lost lives in our greed, in our, you know, all of these things that we wanted. Um, something that companies do, don't do, but really they had a wake up call. Um, and they right. were really, it, it, like, in all the other prior films, they weren't treating Ripley well. Um, they were like, she was yeah. expendable. All these people are expendable. They're garbage. Um, this time, 
I uh, decided let's throw that on its head and let's make them own up to it. Let's make them accountable. Um, and let's make them talk about that. These, these executives saying, Hey, we did fuck up. We have lost yeah. lives and we're not going to do that again. And we're taking responsibility. Um, but at the same time, them saying, but this trip is the, it. this is it. If you can't find your wife, sorry about it. You know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I was coming from. Right. Um, it was so interesting that said, to see, um, it was interesting to see a different side of the company than we were used to a little bit more friendly this time around, but yeah. still kind of like, uh, we don't really have regard for human life. Yeah. Just do what you got to do. Totally. That being said, uh, I'm going to, I can, I'm going to read that, uh, that scene from the alien rising script that I wrote. Uh, Peter, I know you said you have to leave. Um, but uh, I'm, that starts on, like, page 58. Yeah, so I'm going to just read that all myself. And uh, Ryan, yeah. you and I can talk about it later or after I'm done. Okay. And then we can yeah. call that a wrap. Okay, so the setup is uh, on this. This is my Alien Rising script that I wrote before the Alien Genesis script. Um, and the setup is Call and Ripley have been, um, after they kind of came into the atmosphere of Earth, the Betty that they were on was kind of taken over by a USM facility or a USM ship and ushered to a uh, a customs area. Um, yeah. They're taken off the Betty. Joner and Varice are killed off right away. Um, you don't even see them. You don't hear them. Nothing. I did that on purpose because I didn't. I didn't really want much um, connection to sort of the, not the events of the alien resurrection, but uh, I just didn't like the characters. And I, I, the only characters that were vaguely interesting to me certainly was the new Ripley and call. So they're on this, they're on this, they're on earth. They've been told that they are going to now assist USM in, um, the care of all of these aliens that they've discovered that there's another, you know, there's another facility that are breeding aliens successfully. Um, that the Auriga and what all those experiments, it was one of many to try and bring back mm-hmm. Ripley and that the Ripley clone, there was way more than she realized. Um, so this scene here finds Call being introduced by Dr. Hess, a female, Dr. Yeah. Hess, um, and to see um, kind of the aliens that they've created. And uh, they meet one particular creature that kind of stays with them. So with that said, I'm going to uh, start reading. All right, awesome. Interior facility number 36, level 4. Stasis room mid-afternoon. Call walks two feet into the harsh white light and then takes those two steps back. The Dr. Hess looks back at her. Dr. Hess, don't be afraid. They have all been sedated and cannot leave their containment cases. Call's eyes, Call's eyes move around the room. This room is shaped exactly as the egg stasis room before. Call remains where she is. Cases align the walls, cases align the wall stacked in threes. In each case, there is an alien, but they are not normal. Some have disfigured heads, some have disfigured heads, and others with four limbs, tinted skin, or two jaws. They are all lifeless, as if dead. Control panels are attached to each case, obviously monitoring each creature's vital signs. Call steps forward once again. She looks to the far end of the room and sees one lone stasis case. Doctor Hess is holding, is standing by it, and then she moves on to the rest of the cages. She is holding a clipboard in her hand, looking at the creatures and back to the board, writing information down. Call comes within feet of of the single case. An alien that looks quite unaffected by any genetic mutation squats alone in the glass, on the glass case floor. 
Silver bands are attached to all the to all elements of the creature's body. Its long tail is wrapped around its legs, and the end of it is also attached to a band. The bands have written tags on them that read as follows: Stasis use only. Anti-molecular acid. Call Call watches the creature. Its head is down, and it does not move when Call approaches it. Call. What's wrong with this one, Doctor Hess? Nothing. This is This is the creature that I was telling Ripley about before. He's our pride and joy, the first successful tame alien, thanks to our genetics division. He is not even sedated. One could take a knife and cut him and he wouldn't flinch. This one's growth was slowed because of his genetic tampering. Call. How do they grow so quickly? Dr. Hess. After years of research, we discovered that they are self-sustaining. In a normal growth process, while the parasite is attached to the host, it feeds off the nutrients from the host and delivers it to the embryo inside. And when the creature makes its way through the chest cavity, it has enough protein and nutrients to complete its molting process. So in fact, they do not feed once they are freed from the insides of the host. The rest of their the rest of their existence they spend tending to the queen and moving eggs from here to there. They will kill, dismember, maim, and even torture their victims, but they will never eat them. Call. So you did it. You finally harnessed the creature's temper. Dr. Hess. Not quite. This animal is this animal is no use to us like this. It has to have some sort of aggression so that we can teach it how to control itself. Call. So after you experiment and produce this perfect species, what will you do, do with it? Dr. Hess. After we are through, the government will take over and do what it wants to it. The role of this facility has, is to produce 1,000 controllable aliens. Call. That will never happen. Dr. Hess. As you can see, it already is. Call steps back from the case and bumps into a wall. She turns, and what she sees embedded in the wall is a door. Call. What's this What's this lead to? Dr. Hess, another holding pin. Call. Was it, why is it sectioned off? Dr. Hess. Because it's classified. Only myself and Weber can access this that door. Call. The Ripley clone is in there, isn't she? Dr. Hess. How did you find out that information? Call. I didn't. You just told me. Is she alive? Dr. Hess. Yes, she is, but very dangerous. Call. Why? Dr. Hess. Like your companion, she is a genetic duplicate of Ellen Ripley, who left us some years back. And like Ripley 8, she began, undergo to, she began to undergo changes physically, mentally, emotionally. Her body began to mutate. Her changes began much faster than we anticipated, and therefore we decided to keep her alive to monitor her progress. Call looks at the door and then approaches it. She puts her ear up to the door. A thump is heard, and Call backs away. Dr. Hess, she's listening to our conversation. Call, what? Another thump is heard. Call backs even further away. A strange voice creeps through the walls. Voice, open the door, Hess. Open the door. Call, she knows your name? Dr. Hess, she knows everything. Call, is she attached to anything or can she move around inside? Dr. Hess, she is attached to restraints that will allow her to move freely across the confines of the cage. But that is the extent of her freedom. Call. What are you going to do with her? Dr. Hess. That has not been decided. Voice. Open the door, Hess. Call. What's wrong with her voice? Dr. Hess. When her changes began internally, they also began externally as well. Her cranium began to distort, much like her counterpart aliens, and then her voice began to change. She would scream late into the night, this awful, terrible scream. There were days when she would have no memory that she was human and act completely alien, and other days she would be kind and sweet. That was long ago. Now she has found a balance between the two. Voice. Dr. Hess. Dr. Hess. Dr. Hess. To th what, what is it that you want? 
voice. I want, I want, I want to go home. Dr. Hess, you are home. Voice. Who's that fine young lady you have with, with you out there? Call opens her mouth, but the doctor quickly covers it with her hand, motioning not to respond. Call remains silent. Dr. Hess touches a button on the wall and the metal door opens up, revealing a layer of glass beneath it. Looking in, looking in at them is a creature greatly resembling the aliens, but with this face of Ripley. The creature is smiling, looking directly at Call. It is dressed in a torn uniform that is dirty. The creature's cell is not the egg white that is so prominent on the rest of the facility. It is dark brown, moist, and wet. The, creature ha the creature's head is extended with long black hair growing in various spots all over it. Patches of dark that have broken through the outer epidermis of the pink human flesh are everywhere. The creature continues to look into the eyes of Call. Creature, well, aren't you a sight? The eyes of cre the creature glance at Dr. Hess. Creature, you've brought my sister aboard, haven't you now? Dr. Hess, glad to see you are stable. We must be going now. Dr. Hess moves her moves her hand towards the wall. The creature hisses. Creature, you think you can rid me that easily? The creature moves its enormous head towards Call, nudging it to the glass. Creature, such a pretty girl in this nasty place such as this, and you're not even real. What a shame. Dr. Hess pushes the button and the door closes. The creature's laugh is heard through the wall. Call, I knew she was not human. No, sorry, Call, she knew I was not human. Dr. Hess, I told you, she knows everything. Call. And she knew about Ripley? Dr. Hess. They all knew about each other somehow. I don't quite understand the way it works. There have been 12 genetic duplicates of Ellen Ripley, including the unsuccessful batch on the Origo. That The ones that grew and were successful had a clear knowledge of the existence of others. It must be a trait that the aliens that the alien possesses. That creature you have just seen is far more dangerous than the aliens. The aliens are simple in, in the fact that they want to survive and breed. This creature here can understand, manipulate, and control. Combining these attributes with a sense of survival, they will be unstoppable. And I'm going to end it there. Um, wow, that was great. Yeah, uh, I just, I wanted to explore more. Um, I like the idea of genetic mutations and... Um, yeah getting more into kind of like, what are we doing when we dabble with, when we play God, when we kind of combine yeah. stuff. Um, but yeah, so I just wanted to share that with you. And uh, yeah. Yeah, that was cool. I, I mean, I really, um, I like how, not only was it scary, but I like how this, this being speaks. And it kind of reminded me of the, there was a original ending that I think Ridley Scott wanted to do for the first Alien um, and, uh, he wanted to have, uh, I mean, I mean, really Scott or Dan O'Bannon, but one of them wanted to have it where the alien actually bites the head off of Ripley Yes. and, and, uh, and then does, and then copies her voice Yes. and, and, and talks in and does the ending part, um, and speaks out to, um, whoever's listening or whatever. And that's, uh, she's hoping to get picked up or something. And then, um, but yeah, it was really, I mean, just terrifying hearing, kind of hearing that ending. And obviously it was such a downer ending. I guess yeah. they, they yeah. wanted to go with a more, a little slightly, you know, happier ending have Ripley survive and defeat the alien. But, uh, but yeah, just having, um, you know, alien like being with uh, Ripley's face on it and, um, and then speaking and then knowing everything that's going on, um, 
knowing who or what call is and uh you know just kind of this very almost like the serpent you know in, in genesis in the bible and yeah. it kind of reminds me of uh totally just kind of this evil manipulative being that's yeah. that wants to get out this yeah really it struck a chord with me that um and i yeah just uh i i'm just amazed i mean you're in your early 20s right <laughs> i'm like man that's just that's well, talent that's a lot of talent yeah I was really, you know, growing up in religion, I, when I wrote this, I was still steeped in it. I was still kind of growing right. up in the church that I was in at this point. Um, so I had a lot of things kind of running around in me. Um, Ripley yeah. was still uh, a major character for me. She was really a character who helped me survive my youth, in my later youth, my teens, my late teens, especially the Alien 3 Ripley. Um, so really yeah. all of this kind of came about that struggle. It came about like knowing the Bible and um, my love for the series and all sorts of things. But uh, it's, it's interesting to hear it read now because um, it was a mm -hmm. very different me, but uh, thank you for listening yeah. now. And uh, yeah. Yeah. But I say we call that a wrap and uh, right. uh, thank you everybody for listening. This has been a long episode, but we hope you enjoyed it. Um, and we want to know your thoughts about it. Um, write us uh, when we have this published uh, comment, tell us what you think. Um, tell us what you, you know, uh, and tell us what you think of Ripley. Are you done with her? Or what do you think of Ripley eight? Is she worth exploring more? Like would they do a film with Ripley eight? Like, um, but yeah, so, but thanks everyone for listening right. and, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks a lot. When Captain Dallas are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo, signing off.